0: All right, well, let's pray and then we're going to talk real quickly about who St. Patrick was since it's St. Patrick's Day and then we'll jump into the scripture. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together and uh, thank you for those that will join us um, via YouTube. I thank you for those that uh, will listen in on the podcast and I pray, Father, that uh, you will move in each person's life. I know there are those that are struggling with with health and dealing with COVID and just want to continue to pray for Sedley uh, and San Juan and Uh, that they'll move completely through to the other side. We're so excited to see some folks on Sunday that we hadn't seen in a while that have been to the hospital and been sick and so forth. And uh, just pray that uh, we'll all be thankful for what you've done in our lives and uh, realize that our health is probably the most precious thing we have. Um, We can have all these other goods, but if we don't have our health, we don't have anything. So I thank you that Sue has overcome what she was dealing with and uh, just pray that we'll continue to persevere and stay healthy and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. St. Patrick's Day. All right. So what do we know about that? It's usually parades, Irish people. Really right? Margaritas. Margaritas. That's Cico de Mayo. But they make everything green. All right. <laughs> I should say green drinks then. There mm-hmm. green, green drinks. Cereal. Right. <clears> throat> um. Throat> well, we're... This is not a a huge Irish part of the country. If you were in Boston, then, you know, it's it's huge, 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 right? Um, Let me read a little bit from this this book. It's titled 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. I was going to read the article from the Oxford uh, Dictionary of the Christian Church. It's more scholarly, but this one I think is probably a little more interesting. Um, Patrick is remembered today as the saint who drove the snakes out of Ireland which is not true, all right? Uh, he's known as the teacher who used the shamrock to explain the Trinity, and that's doubted, right? That, that he held up the shamrock and it has three leaves, but it's one, and you know, any time you try to explain the Trinity, it's going to be an imperfect explanation. And he's known as the namesake of annual parades in New York and Boston. What is less well-known is that Patrick was a humble missionary. This saint regularly referred to him as a sinner, of enormous courage. When he evangelized Ireland, he set in motion a series of events that impacted all of Europe. It all started when he was carried off into slavery by Irish raiders. So I find it interesting today. There's there's a whole lot of talk about, um, you know, groups of people that have um, been involved in, in uh, oppressing other groups of people. And I even had one of my... Uh, young ladies that's on my Facebook said that, you know, all, all of us of a, you know, that are all of our people should be ashamed of these things that took place and so forth. And I said, our people, like, who are we talking about here? Because if you want to know the truth, um, the Irish were enslaved for quite a while. The English were responsible for oppressing the, they're all white. So this isn't about black and white and all this. People have done this to people, right? And we need to pay attention to that. Well, interestingly, um, Patrick, although we think of him as being Irish, wasn't Irish. He was British, all right? But he was Latin-speaking British. He was um, not of the, uh, the latter... Anglo-Saxon variety but uh, he was from Roman stock really okay but he was from Britain and he was kidnapped by Irish pirates now I didn't even know there were Irish pirates it kind of how would they speak you know you know, the, the Irish pirate. but but it is an Irish pirate it'd be like I'm hey, a pirate come with me you know I'm going to Put you on my shepherd. <laughs> but in any event, uh, they kidnapped him and they took him to Ireland and he ended up being a slave for six years. And uh, he was a shepherd. Now you think of a shepherd and some of the ten sheep. No, he tended pigs, actually. Uh, so um, let me read a little bit more. I'm coming from my memory there. and A 16-year-old Romanized Briton, Patrick was sold to a cruel warrior chief whose opponent's heads sat atop sharp poles around his palisade in Northern Ireland. While Patrick minded his master's pigs in the nearby hills, he lived like an animal himself, enduring long bouts of hunger, thirst, and isolation. A nominal Christian up to this point. Do you know what a nominal Christian is? What that means? It means somebody who is in a Christian, but pretty much in name only. They really don't practice Christianity, right? Um, This is very early. This is fifth century, but Christianity had spread all over the Roman empire at this point in time. So there were quite a few Christians and there were quite a few people who had been raised in Christian homes. And this was Patrick, but he really wasn't a strong practicing Christian. It was simply his profession a lot of people profess christianity but they don't really practice it and we do that for different reasons okay but then things happen in our lives and sometimes they're good things but oftentimes there are bad things that push us closer to god and to pay more attention to the lord well that's what happened with this fella after six years of slavery uh well let me back up uh A nominal Christian to this point, he now turned to the Christian God of his fathers for comfort. This is in this horrible process he was going through, um, these terrible circumstances. I would pray constantly during the daylight hours, he later recalled. The love of God and the fear of him surrounded me more and more, and faith grew. And the spirit roused so that one day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and at night only slightly less. After six years of slavery, a mysterious supernatural voice spoke to him, Soon you will return to your homeland. So Patrick fled and ran 200 miles to a southeastern harbor. There he boarded a ship boarded a ship of traders bound for Europe. After a few years on the continent, Patrick returned to his family in England, only to be called back to Ireland as an evangelist. I seemed to hear the voice of the same men who lived beside the forests. And they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. I was deeply moved in heart and I could read no further. So I awoke. Whether Patrick was the first missionary to Ireland or not, paganism was still dominant when he arrived. This is his quote. I dwell among Gentiles, he wrote, in the midst of pagan barbarians, worshippers of idols and of unclean things. Patrick's mission faced the most opposition from the Druids who practiced magic, were skilled in secular learning, especially law and history, and advised Irish kings. Biographies of the saint are replete with stories of Druids who wished to kill Holy Patrick. This is a quote. Daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, but I fear none of these things because of the promises of heaven. I have cast myself into the hands of God Almighty, who rules everywhere. Patrick was as fully convinced as the Celts, this would be the early Irish, right, that the power of the Druids was real. But he brought news of a stronger power. Um, and then uh, there's a, a famous poem that he wrote Um <laughs> There was probably a confrontation between Patrick and the Druids, but scholars doubt it was as dramatic and magical as later stories recounted. One biographer from the late 600s described Patrick challenging Druids to contests at Tara, in which each party tried to outdo the other in working wonders before the audience. Patrick, the legend says one, <clears throat> excuse me, as God killed several of the Druids and soldiers, quote, the king summoned his council and said, it is better for me to believe than to die. Yeah, I don't think so. And he believed, as did many others that day. Well, there's a lot of legend that seeps into the accounts of these saints as uh, the, uh, the church progresses and venerates them and so forth. And, you know, if you think of uh, the Catholic Church, there's still a tendency to, to pray to saints, and, uh, you know, they call it veneration or lifting up of saints. And uh, Patrick is one of the most significant ones. So that should, I hope, give you some information about this holy day. This is Patrick's feast day. And uh, if you follow a Catholic lectionary, which is uh, will give daily scripture readings, it will tell you all of the saints' feast days, Right. Now, I read a bunch of different lectionaries because I like the scripture selections from these. Uh, and I just recently picked up uh, the Catholic one. I don't read all of the uh, the uh, specifics that are related to the services that they would do on those particular days, but they have scripture selections. And today is indeed in the Catholic Church, St. Patrick's Feast Day. So that's where we get all of those uh, sorts of things. And in fact... I don't know whether you knew this or not, but um, November 1st is called All Saints Day. Have you ever heard that? That was because they had so many feast days for different saints that they just, you know, did their equivalent of President's Day. They're like, yeah, we're not going to separate you know, Lincoln and Washington. We're just going to have a President's Day. We'll put them all on that. So they had All Saints Day. Interestingly, we don't celebrate All Saints Day, do we? We celebrate All Hallows Eve, which is the night before All Saints Day and is actually rather evil. But nonetheless, uh, <laughs> we have fun with our kids and, you know, I, you don't have to chase your kids off from Halloween. You can give them some candy and so forth. Christians are good at taking over pagan holidays anyway. So, But, you know, people do some kind of ridiculous, bad things on Halloween. It would be probably better if we... Kind of went back to celebrating the saints. There's some cool things that they did, but there's a lot of legend there as well. And, uh, so probably, you know, some of these contests and mythical magical stuff, uh, may well be in the legend category, but, uh, Patrick was very important. He brought Catholicism at that point. It was just Christianity, right? And <laughs> there was no separate, there was just one church. in fact, The word Catholic, you know what this word means? It just means universal, right? The one holy Catholic Church. But Catholic little c, which means universal church, became Catholic big C, Roman Catholic institutional church, and so forth. So, and we don't, you know, I don't jump up and down and rank on Catholics or Orthodox or whatever denomination around here. I think we, as believers in Jesus need to learn to get along a whole lot better with other believers in Jesus, which sicks right into what we're going to talk about today. Um, this is first Corinthians. And uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and start with verse 10. I'm not going to back up. This is first Corinthians chapter one, verses 10 through 17, and it'll appear verse by verse on the screen over here. Uh, For those of you that are online, it'll appear verse by verse on the screen that's down there. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power." So let's look at that first verse. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. First of all, when he says brothers, many translations will say brothers and sisters, right? Because this wasn't intended to be uh, focused on just the males in the community. In fact, um, men had... um, a better uh, life, better reputation, and so forth at this point in time. But uh, women were always included in everything that Christ did. So when in scripture, uh, unless it's explicit, when it says brothers, it's always referring to the women as well. That's not an ignoring the sisters. That is an, actually, it is an inclusion, right? There's not a Uh, a uh, level system here where the, the men as in the synagogue would have had, um, you know, a a better position and the women, a lower position or a greater position. Um, Men and women worshiped in church together. And uh, so when he says, I appeal to you brothers, then we should realize that this is both the men and the women. And it's also, we should realize that this means we're related in Christ. So, um, this was the other interesting thing I didn't bring this up when I responded to this person on my Facebook post about our people oppressing everyone um, you know the the people that I recognize as my people are people that follow Jesus uh, I don't even agree with all my relatives <laughs> you know <laughs> do any of us right I mean we have different opinions and uh, you know there there's some you know racism uh, in parts of my family and you know I don't I repudiate that. I reject that. The the only way that you're guilty of these sorts of things is if you simply accept and go along with those attitudes. Right. But who I want to acknowledge as my brothers and sisters in Christ are those who profess Jesus and seek to follow Jesus. We're the ones that are going to spend eternity together. Right. Then he says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this isn't just Paul's opinion, right? It's not just a wish that he has. This is an authoritative pronouncement. It comes from his authority as an apostle, but it's from Christ that the apostle makes his appeal. So he's when he's saying he's an apostle, he's an ambassador, he's a representative. So if you have an ambassador from the United States in another country, that ambassador represents all of us to that country, right? Um, They are the the voice of America in that country, if you will. When you represent someone else, let's say someone, uh, you know, gives you their power of attorney. Well, now you're acting as them. Like there's a number of occasions that, that, you know, I've had to sign like a power of attorney over this or that. Uh, In fact, I did it recently. Um, I'll try not to go too far afield on this Right at the end of the snowpocalypse that we had, I was backing out of a parking space. Actually I backed into the parking space and I pulled out forward and I, I hope that this is what happened. I think my, my tires caught some of that ice and slid over. It was either that or just cut the car too close. And I ended up uh, catching this guy's bumper and Initially, I didn't think anything happened, but it turned out that his bumper dug right into the side of my truck and uh, it didn't look that bad until I went several days after the snow and everything went away and I washed the truck and then I could see, oh, great. So, you know, the idea that I had of, oh, I'll just get somebody to pull that dent out. I was like, no, I'm going to have to put this on my insurance and go into all this drama. And I looked at the guy's bumper. It didn't look like anything happened. There was a little bit of black paint on his bumper. And then I went back out to try to talk to him or wash the black paint off his bumper. I was kind of hoping I'd get away with that rather than him using it as an excuse to, you know, repaint his whole truck or something. And he was gone. So I ended up taking my truck and going to, uh, with my insurance and everything. And I had to sign a power of attorney so that when the insurance released the check, that the body shop could just cash it, right? So what you're doing then is you're giving someone that authority that flows from you. And that's what's happening here. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul is acting in behalf of Christ here. And he's making that appeal uh, as Christ would make that appeal. Since the people have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, then it is incumbent upon them to respond to this r- appeal as though Christ were making it. So. That's something we need to understand when the fundamental confession of the Christian faith is Jesus is Lord. So we're acknowledging that he has a oneness with God and we're acknowledging that he has authority over our life. I'm acknowledging that he has authority over me. That means when Jesus teaches something, then I need to listen. When Jesus commands something, I've said, you're Lord. That means I obey. We don't argue. I just need to obey. Right. I'm not saying I don't argue. There are times when I don't like certain things that I know the Lord wants me to do. And, you know, I go through my little you know, machinations and dealing and whatever with the Lord and finally figure out he's right. He's always right. So even if I don't like it, even if the culture doesn't agree, he's always right. So when we hear this, this is to the Corinthian church but we're part of the church today. This is the word of God. So that's why we need to pay attention and listen to it as well. Right? So what does he command or appeal to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and judgment. Hmm. So, um, I was sharing with our our new friends over here a little bit of my history here in Texas and the churches that I've been to um, really only three. So I haven't church hopped. Um, I got, I entered into ministry as a staff person in 1988 and I've been to three churches, right? First Baptist church, the colony as their youth minister, Freeman Heights Baptist church as their associate pastor and youth minister. And then here, but I've been to plenty of churches and heard plenty of stories Churches divide over the dumbest things. I mean, you know, churches disagree over the color of the carpet. You know, they're going to change the carpet out, and you know, people do. No, I don't like that. You know? um, one of the biggest disagreements in churches for years, and it's probably ongoing, is over music. Right? Uh, music is so personal to people, and musical styles are so different. You know, sharing with the, with you ladies earlier that. Uh, my dad was into country music, and so that's why I kind of push back against that. Oh, I don't hate it. Um, it used to just kind of crawl under my skin because I had bad memories. And you associate things with music, you know. Um, and so you have older people that have been in church their whole lives, and they're used to singing hymns and organs and choirs and so forth. But then churches want to appeal to younger people, and so they have a band. Well, what they end up having to do is have multiple services with different styles of music. We don't do that. Everybody either just likes what we do or they just go somewhere else. You know, we don't have choir. Although I like choirs. I, you know, I'm okay with that. Um, I actually like hymns. I wish we could, you know, rearrange a few of them and do some more of them and whatnot. But that's just another thing that churches find to disagree over. Um, it appears that what was going on with this church was they were, they were identifying each group was identifying with a particular teacher. Well, that can happen as well. Right. Um, teachers have different personalities and different approaches to the word of God. And, uh, you know, it would be like in our church, you know, well, we follow pastor Craig. Oh, well, we follow pastor Dean. Oh, right. You know, that's, uh, it would be the equivalent of that. Okay. But what did Jesus say? Um, Jesus, when responding to the accusation that he cast out demons by the power of the devil, said every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Well, our country needs to pay attention to that today. And certainly churches need to pay attention to that. So whether that is people who are within a particular local congregation or whether that is the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, small c, right? We need to pay attention to that because in dividing, we are at the very least diluting our influence. But we also may be destroying our influence uh, in, in this world in which we live. Um, so I had forgotten that I'd put this in here. I think I must have been reading Lord of the Rings uh, when I did these notes originally. Uh, As an illustration of this division, consider the fantasy novel Lord of the Rings. In the first book of the trilogy, we observe the companions who've been assembled to assist the main character Frodo discharge his burden of destroying the Ring of Power. But they're weakened by pride. Even as they rise up strongly against one another, they divide along lines drawn by ancient conflicts and loyalties. In Tolkien's myth, elves and dwarves who once had a prosperous relationship are now estranged due to harm done when the greed of the dwarves drove them to mine too deeply and awaken an ancient demon called a Balrog. This drove many of the elves away from their first home. We come to a point in the story when the companions are walking through the elf forest of Lothlorien. Let me quote. As we agreed, I shall hear blindfold the eyes of Gimli the dwarf. This is uh, an elf speaking to the dwarf. The others may walk free for a while until we come nearer our dwellings. This was not at, the, not at all to the liking of Gimli. The agreement was made without my consent, he said. I will not walk blindfolded like a beggar or a prisoner, and I am no spy. My folk had never had dealings with any of the servants of the enemy, neither have we done them harm, done any harm to the elves. I am no more likely to betray you than Legolas, which is the elf that came with them and their companion, or any of my other companions. I do not doubt you, said Haldir, yet it is our law. So the conflict heats up until Gimli unsheathes his axe, and the elves draw their bows, and the leader of the company, Aragorn, proposes that all of them be blindfolded to make things more fair. Now, Legolas, the elf, complains, desiring greatly to see the wonders of Lothlorien. Alas, for the folly of these days, says Legolas, here all are enemies of the one enemy, and yet I must walk blind while the sun is merry in the woodland under the leaves of gold. Folly it may seem, said Haldir, indeed in nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. Yet so little faith and trust do we find now in the world." Wow, that's like, you know, something that could easily be related to the church. We need to have a united front against the darkness that is descending upon our society and our culture. And rather than that happening, we have these little fights and arguments over a variety of things that in the biggest picture of things just really don't matter. Churches divide and fold or remain impotent as a result of their Inability to agree. Families fight and fail to overcome obstacles that they've I've seen that for years as well. Here are families that are struggling, but they're fighting each other. Man, when things are bad, that's when you need to join together shoulder to shoulder with your family. You all need to fight together. So it's interesting. You would think that we would pool our resources when things are difficult and all too often we're tearing each other apart. And this is just how the enemy works. Nations divide and are conquered by other nations that are united by belief and purpose. There is constant conflict between warring theological or doctrinal factions. Calvinists call charismatics false. Politically conservative Christians reject those who are not 100% in agreement with their position on cultural issues. The coronavirus has divided Christians over face masks and in-person church attendance. We face a great enemy, and he's keeping us weak by dividing us. We need to remain united in our faith in Jesus and not pass judgment on others over debatable issues. Um, this is what uh, the apostle Paul wrote over that, uh, concerning that idea of passing judgment on others. He says in Romans fourteen thirteen. therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Different sects argue over Sabbath observance, uh, eating meat or drinking alcohol. And to this, the Apostle Paul would write, same uh, same chapter of Romans, a couple verses down, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, what do we do when we're in those situations uh, where contention rises? I think we compromise so long as it's not a compromise of the truth or a compromise of doctrine, okay? Um, there are people that uh, you know won't eat pork, for example. Well, that doesn't mean that I need to parade my pulled pork sandwich in front of them, right? If that's offensive, then I can eat something else. It's okay. There are people that are, are vegan, and <clears throat> they're not vegan just for health reasons. They think that it's actually morally wrong to kill an animal and eat it well i'm not going to just flaunt my freedom in front of a vegan right and you know drag them over here to intrinsic and say man you you gotta try some of this barbecue now it's interesting carrie's got some uh vegan dishes over there right so you know somebody could order that but i just if someone had a moral problem with it um i don't have to change my belief system in order to get along no, I'm just throwing things out there that I think will be less controversial. There, there are some things that are just so incendiary right now, um, that you can't even talk about them. Um, and a lot of those things have to do with politics. Sadly, too many Christians have become too political and it doesn't matter if that's on the left or on the right, entirely too political and not able to get along with something. And this is, this is something that happened to me again on Facebook recently, um, Someone mentioned something about a particular politician, a state politician, by the way. And I said, Well, I think that person is doing a good job. And they posted the little laughing. It wasn't just a laughing emoji. They went and dug up a gif where there was this person on their back going, ah, 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 ah." (laughs) so I said, Okay, wow. Yeah, I don't. See if I can't talk to somebody without them mocking. I don't need that relationship. Now I would do anything for this person if I needed to, but I don't need to deal with that. Right. You don't need mockery in your life. There's just, we put up with too much stuff that perhaps we shouldn't put up with. Um, we can love people and we can be there for people, but that doesn't mean we've got to tolerate all of that uh, drama. And um, yeah, that's not something that I'm going to tolerate. So, Um, you and I should realize that we're in a world that is divided over issues. And it's like, you can say something that you didn't even realize was offensive. You didn't know it was offensive and somebody gets offended. Right. So I'm not going to apologize if something wasn't wrong, but I can change the way I approach that person and make sure that that's not going to happen any longer. Right. Um, Okay. Um, Let's go to the next uh, verses 12 and 13 here. He now kind of defines this. He says, there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or you baptized in the name of Paul? These divisions were unnecessary Uh, they were not being promoted by those leaders. So Paul and Apollos and Cephas, that's Peter, by the way, um, they weren't trying to gather followers around them and say, no, no, no. You need to listen to my teaching. Don't listen to that Paul over there. Although the apostle Paul called Peter on the carpet in Galatians. Right. But it didn't cause him to say Peter's not a Christian or whatever. It was just. (laughs) That <laughs> was just Paul. He's going to tell it like it is. And if he's right, he's going to tell you, this is what needs to change. And that was something that, uh, that he said uh, regarding Peter. But this wouldn't cause them to divide into camps and say, hey, no, you need to follow my teaching and not his teaching. It is only the teaching of Christ. In spite of the fact that there was apparently a group that said, well, we follow Christ. Um, if they were rejecting everybody else, then they weren't really following Jesus because Jesus wants us Uh, to be united under him, right? Um, So once again, Jesus' teaching can help us here. The Lord said, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the position of preeminence must always be Christ's, right? So, you know, um, I don't think this means Jesus is trying to say that it's wrong to call somebody a teacher, right? Uh, even the apostle Paul said uh, to this very group of people, you do not have many fathers in Christ, but he didn't want to be called father. Um, as we would perhaps in a Catholic church call the priest father, this isn't really what Jesus wanted to have happen. Um, I have a role in our church as the pastor. That's a functional role. I oversee this church and you can call me pastor Daryl, but I don't want to be the person that sets all of the theology in everybody's life. I don't want to be the person that everybody has to be accountable in every area of, I don't want that job. That's God's job. That's Jesus. Right? So I try to teach and then I pray you pay attention and you dig into the scripture and you let the Lord speak to you. Uh, in fact, the apostle John said in first John that the Holy Spirit is your teacher. So what I pray is happening as we're having this uh, teaching time, or if you're joining us here and and, you know, you're you're listening later on the podcast, is if you're seeking to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you is every human being is going to fail. Right. We're, I'm not infallible. So there is a doctrine in the Catholic Church that says that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. So they actually believe that the Pope cannot err as long as he's speaking ex cathedra, which means from the chair. In other words, officially. They're not trying to say if he speaks off the cuff or if he shares an opinion. But that's a very strong statement. And I don't think that even the Pope is infallible. I don't, there's no human being that's infallible. Jesus was infallible. And so we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fall short. I'm going to say things that are going to bug people and sometimes they shouldn't. Um, But I'm going to say things that, you know, are just my personality coming through and that offends somebody. And I've had to apologize plenty of times for, for doing that. And I'm a human being as well. So what I hope is, that people like me are pointing you to pay attention to Jesus, are pointing you to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not all just an intuitive, instinctive, uh, subjective experience. As I read the Word of God, as I expose myself to people who are giving uh, explanation, then there is an intellectual process that is happening there too, a rational process that's happening that the Holy Spirit is involved with as well. Okay. Um, so the problem though, is there's too, peop- too few people who heed this teaching uh, where Jesus said, you know, we're not to be putting someone on that pedestal. Uh, yeah, that's my rabbi. I do what he says, that sort of thing. Um, we have Calvinists they follow John Calvin's teaching. We have Lutherans. That's Martin Luther, John Calvin and Martin Luther were great guys, but this is what you want to be known as somebody's name. Dude, I don't want a Darelist That would, you know, <laughs> Darylism. Yeah, so I follow Daryl. I'm in the Darylist church. I don't, that would be horrible. That's, you know, and yet, Somebody can have that kind of influence where the church bears their name. Oh, mm, yeah, I'm good. Catholics follow the Pope. Uh, church of Christ. This is exactly like you know. I follow Christ, and I'm not disparaging anybody. I'm just I'm showing you how these different groups do what they do. There are great Lutherans and great Calvinists, and I'm not just putting anything against them. I'm I'm trying to show you how this. This uh, practice continues today. Um, Church of Christ say, no, we're Christians. We follow Christ. But they actually follow Alexander Campbell. Right. they're Campbellites. They they have a particular perspective on Scripture and on salvation. And they're following someone who originally had that perspective. So we do the same thing today. Right. Um, And there are denominational labels as well. Baptists, which I identify with. Pentecostals, the emergent church, the purpose-driven church, and on and on. Differences and distinctives are not bad, okay, except when they're elevated to the point that division takes place as the result. Essential loyalty to Christ and humility and doctrinal differences, particularly in debatable issues, will prevent division from occurring. What are debatable issues? Well, there are sometimes important issues, but there has not been a consistent consensus among Christians in some of these important issues. So you have to just kind of hold them at arm's length. Issues like election, right? Um, That we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does that mean when it concerns my choice and so forth? And there are different answers to that question, and I have an answer to that question as well. But Calvinists are very strong on election, for example. Ecclesiology, that is how do you do church? Do you have a presbytery? Do you have a board of elders? Or do you have a pastor or two pastors? Or is it a you know, wide open congregational form of government where you have business meetings every month and fight over everything? I mean, that's the Baptist way right there. Um, it's what I come out of. So there, there are all these different areas where people could divide. But I think what would be important in our time is to pursue what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. So when when he, he did a series of lectures, C.S. Lewis did, radio uh, talks, he called them. And those were compiled and became the famous book, Mere Christianity. But his perspective was that he just wanted to cover the basics of the Christian faith. He didn't want to get into debates over baptism and purgatory and uh, ecclesiology. How do you you know, do church? Because he wanted to appeal to all Christians. And really he wanted to appeal to secular people who were considering or who might consider Christianity and say, Hey, this is kind of the basic approach here. And it's a very, very good book. I can highly recommend it, but I think that that's what we need to be pursuing. So, I'm not going to change our practice of baptism. Uh, We baptize by immersion, right? It's not just Baptists that do that. A lot of different evangelical, evangelical, just meaning we believe in the gospel, right? Uh, The evangelion, the gospel. But we put the person under the water and we bring them up out of the water. Honestly, it would be a whole lot easier to sprinkle because we don't have a baptistry, Right. So what do I have? I've got a stock tank out there and we have to drag it in here and I got to fill it up and I got to warm up the water and make sure, you know, and all these different things or else I've got a, you know, our sister church over there, Freeman Heights that I was at in the 90s. will let us use their baptistry sometimes. It's a ginormous hassle is what it is. Okay, Or even if we just did what the Methodists do, you know, you kind of lean your head over and you pour the water on it. It would be so much easier. Right. But. I very strongly believe that scripture teaches that baptism is symbolic of something that can only be seen when you put someone under the water and raise them out of the water. But does that mean I won't have fellowship with Presbyterians because they baptize babies? No. Does that mean that I will agree with them? No. Does that mean that I won't have debates? It depends on if they're open to having that discussion. But, you know, I'm not here to try to win somebody from being a Presbyterian or a Methodist or whatever. We've done uh, a, um, A 5K with uh, a group of Methodist churches, obviously didn't do it last year because there was no anything last year, but uh, including First United Methodist and um, just a bunch of Methodist churches that are around you, like four or five, six different Methodist churches. And we're the only non-Methodist church, you know, or at least we were for a long time that was in that group, but we can join together with them and have fellowship and do. Does that mean that I agree with everything that they do or say? No, I don't. Okay. But if we can approach this concept of mere Christianity, I think that we'll have a lot more influence in our culture and people will be a lot more willing to pay attention to what we have to say rather than just being the frozen chosen over here in the corner thinking we're the only ones that are going to heaven. And that's just not the case. So now I don't mean to advocate unity at all costs. There are essentials in the Christian faith, mere Christianity, uh, focuses on Christ and that Christ is the unique son of God, right? Um, Departure from what Jude calls the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints is apostasy. It's departure from Christianity. Now there are plenty of denominations that are moving further and further and further away from that faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. I'm not going to get into Uh, a a backwater here and discussing certain issues, but there are certain cultural issues that are prominent today that churches are uh, moving toward the culture and away from scripture. And once they move away to the degree that they begin to renounce this faith that once, once for all entrusted to the saints out, I will speak the truth. I will tell you uh, what these folks believe. I mentioned this on, Uh, Sunday, as a part of my message, it wasn't uh, stated to be a part of the message on Sunday. Um, But uh, Mormons, okay, Uh, this is uh, by and large a wonderful group of people. But this is not Orthodox historic Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses, this is not Orthodox historic Christianity. Mormons will tell you that Jesus is the son of God, but Mormons are actually polytheists. They believe there are many gods of many planets. Well, then really Muslims are closer to having a correct theology than Mormons. You see what I'm saying? I can talk, you know, about Muslims as well and say, here are points of agreement. They don't believe Jesus is the son of God. They don't believe Jesus was crucified. But there's no more, even if you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, the central fact in the Jesus story is the crucifixion. He was crucified, right? Even if you want to resist the idea, the reality, I believe, that he was raised from the dead, to repudiate the crucifixion is uh, not historical and not accurate. But does that mean I can't have a discussion with a Mormon or a Muslim or Jehovah's Witnesses? I hope not. But I can't have fellowship with those folks. We're not of the same type. Does that make sense? Right? So I don't have to hate people. But I need to realize that there are lines that uh, that should be drawn. Okay. Um, interestingly, there are uh, increasing numbers of people today who want to dismiss the teachings of Paul with the assertion that the apostle was promoting a different religion, or at least a different teaching than Jesus. well, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he wrote more than half the Bible, or the New Testament of the Bible in any event, okay? Um, he received the commission to be the apostle to the Gentiles from Jesus. You can find that in Acts 9.15, 13.2, and 22.21. Paul applied Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection, and those who would dismiss God's chosen apostle because of his teaching about homosexuality or the role of women in the church or his approach to the law are rejecting one whom God chose to give direction to the Gentile church and write more than half the New Testament. We should not be convinced to pit Paul against Jesus. The apostle the apostle Paul, that is, always deferred to the Lord when he offered his own opinion on matters of practice. In fact, uh, we'll get to that eventually in first Corinthians chapter seven, he said, I give you this advice. This is the teaching of the Lord. So he was constantly aware that he had authority that he was seeking to direct churches, but there were certain teachings that came from Jesus that were not a matter of um, uh, dispute or debate or opinion. Um, so I think we need to be careful. I've, I've encountered people, on the the more liberal side that want to reject Paul. They don't like him. And I've encountered people that are more legalistic. Uh, They want to follow the law, the dietary laws, the mosaic laws, and so forth. Well, they want to reject Paul as well, because Paul, uh, although he was a Pharisee, very clearly says that love is the fulfillment of the law and that when we follow Christ and we have the Holy spirit, then we have the embodiment of the law. So we don't have to be following specific commandments and so forth. But Paul was accused of being an antinomian even in the first century. That means someone who is against law, but he wasn't. Okay. So, um, I'm trying to point out areas where we see this same conflict being perpetuated today. I am of this teacher. I am of that teacher. I, you know, I'm of uh, another do- denomination. Um, then he said, "I thank God that I baptized none of you." And then he gives several people. Uh, I think this is interesting. Um, well, let's let's go back up and uh, and read what he said exactly. Um, I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that none may so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, verse sixteen. This is a parenthetical. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. Have you considered how strange that is that that's in the Bible? Yeah. If you were writing this today, you would just edit that part out. You really would, yeah. Or you would just, you would change it. Okay? So this says something about our Bible. It says something about uh, inspiration, right? We find evidence, first of all, that Paul was dictating this letter. He wasn't writing it. (coughs) He was speaking it. And there was an amanuensis that was writing it. An amanuensis, a secretary, okay? But this person that was writing what Paul was saying considered it so important that they wrote every single thing that he said. (laughs) Everything that he said. He didn't say, hang on, Paul. You want to rework that so that we, no, that's not his job. They believe the apostle Paul is anointed. They believe that he's inspired and they he's going to let it roll. He's going to write what the apostle, that's what the apostle Paul said. That's what I'm going to write down. All right. So I think that that's important. Um, it's also something to consider when we read commentators who would rip apart this or any of Paul's other letters, insisting that redactors, that's editors, have altered the original text in order to perfect, correct, or even elaborate for the purpose of helping readers understand. No, they did not. That's not what you find in scripture, right? And even when we see differences in different manuscripts of the same letter, we have so many of these manuscripts that we can detect the differences uh, that, uh, that were taking place. But in no case was that Uh, an attempt to override what the apostle was saying here. Okay. Um, This letter has gone through history with the same obvious unedited style through 2000 years of history. And we still have that. Oh, well, by the way, and I just, and I don't remember really the apostle Paul didn't remember. Yeah. He was a human being. I love it. I absolutely love it. It just it brings forth the, the humanity of the writer of Scripture. It shows that even when you're inspired by the Lord, you're not a robot. You know, there's, there's a person. um It's called mechanical dictation. Now These folks are so interested in making sure that the Bible is inerrant and infallible that what they'll say is, well, th- the Holy Spirit just pushed the pen. This person isn't even really involved. It's just, you know, well, what is that? You see personalities coming through scripture, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is important. Um, God is not terribly interested in making sure that every detail that Paul spoke was accurate. He didn't know. He said, I I could have baptized others. I don't remember. (laughs) It's awesome. The Holy Spirit seems to be more concerned about directing the mind and mouth of the apostle to speak truth concerning God than facts about minor incidents. Now this might be disturbing to some people, but it's precisely what helps us to see that this letter is, you see, there's this things like, well, you know, it was the emperor Constantine that divided decided uh, the canon of scripture. This is simply not true, right? The canon of scripture, meaning the accepted books, um, there were already books that were recognized, letters, books, we call them all books, um, writings that were recognized as being inspired. And the churches were reading them, right, for the first four centuries of the existence of, of the uh, Christian church. But eventually what happened was they collected them together and they said, we need to draw lines and, and say, these are the ones that we want to say are going to be canonical. And these are the ones that are not. Um, And there were some debates, right? So recently I taught through second Peter. Did you know that second Peter was one of the uh, writings that was debated in the church as to whether it should be included, but as they prayed through and as they looked at it and as they evaluated it, then it was accepted. it was being read all along. Constantine didn't come along and say, I want you to put 2 Peter in there and Jude and definitely want Revelation. By the way, all three of those were disputed and debated. Constantine didn't have anything to do with it. What Constantine had was an empire that he wanted to be united around Christianity. But Christianity was divided. It was divided into two major sects. There were Catholic Christians, small c at this point in time, and there were Aryan Christians, not to be confused with white supremacist Aryans. These were followers of a, uh, a teacher named Arius, and he taught that Jesus was a created being. And so there was a significant number of people that were following Arius and this idea that Jesus was a created being. Rather than the only begotten son of God, eternally begotten of the father, what we have in the Nicene Creed. So obviously, you know, which side won out. What Constantine did was he called together all of the bishops in the empire because he had legalized Christianity for the first time. And he called all of these bishops together and they came together at the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, right? Right. And that's where we get the creed called the Nicene creed It came out of that council. And that's where they formulated uh, this uh, idea of uh, God being Trinitarian and the three persons of the Trinity being homoousia, which is a Greek word meaning they're all the father, the son and the Holy spirit are three persons, but one essence, one substance, if you will. Right. So, Um, the apostle Paul is interested in bigger issues. Uh, these Christians were being persecuted in the early days of the church and they were forced to turn over their scrolls and have them burned. In fact, the emperor right before Constantine, um, was forcing Christians under pain of death to turn over these scrolls and have them burned. The apostle Paul said, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. So baptism is important, but it's not as important as preaching the good news because it's the good news of the gospel that incites faith, inspires faith. We baptize, but I've baptized plenty of people through the years. And baptism can be very meaningful as a symbol, or it can just be getting wet. It really depends on the faith that you have. And this is why we're careful. We baptize a lot of kids. We have a lot of kids in this church. We baptize a lot of kids, but we're careful about uh, just baptizing a child simply because other children have been baptized. And kids follow other kids, right? They follow the expectations of their parents. Their parents want to be baptized. They sense that. They want to be pleasing to their parents. They get baptized. But that's that's not an authentic expression of that individual's faith, right? So we need to teach and we need to preach. And that's what the apostle Paul said. uh, This is what I've come to do, right? And the scripture says, and this is Paul writing again in Romans chapter 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. What's happening in this room right now, what's happening on this, this video right now, on this podcast right now, is you're hearing the word. And that's giving you an opportunity to believe. You choose to reach out and catch that, right? So I remember, uh, this will be the last story that I tell. We always end a day. Um I had a lot of young people in this church for quite a while. And even all the way up into the mid-2000s. So where we met before we met here was right up the road at the Hispanic Seventh-day Adventist used to be the old Austin Street Church of Christ. And then they sold it and the SDA's church bought it. And I approached them because Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturdays. Seems to me, if you're talking about, you know, being able to get along with each other and help each other, that that's a really, really good opportunity, right? They worship on Sunday we went in there and we worshiped in, in their building and paid them rent. Um, on, uh, they'd worship on Saturday. We worshipped on, on, uh, on Sunday. Um, while we were over there. Um, but you know what? I can't even remember that where I was going with that story. Um, and it's eight o'clock and that's why I'm getting distracted. So. <laughs> we got long <laughs> Yeah. I can't even remember. well, just consider that a, a final example of, uh, you know, what unity should be, should be all about. Um, we had to respect this, the Seventh-day Adventists. I remember we did a, a, um, a dramatic production over there, and we had always in the past done it on Friday. But because Friday was leading into, because their Sabbath actually starts at sundown on Friday, we couldn't do it on Fridays. We were not permitted to use the building on Friday. Well, you know, they were kind enough to let us use their building and we got along with them. Um, But they're big on, they're big on the law and observing the law and so forth. So it's a good example of, of getting along. So, all right, well, maybe next week I'll remember where I was going with that story. I'm losing my mind.